Well, welcome again to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you've come to join us. I hope you are excited. Montica, you may have been before the service, but now you're probably even more, but just because so much excitement, right? What a good day. I think of the words of the psalmist. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord, and surely today is what they meant. And so we are so glad that you've joined us, and we love the sound of the little one back there. So I saw two babies in here in the house. They're within a row of each other. So congratulations and welcome. So glad to have both the babies here. Don't stress about the sound. We love the sound of babies because that means life, right? And so praise God. We're excited. Uh, So thank you again for being here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we turn our attention now to the Word of God. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, we thank you for the great love with which you've loved us. We thank you that you continue to to call us to yourself, Lord, that you continue to pursue us in all seasons of life, whatever it is that we may be facing, whatever it is that we may have done, wherever it is that, that we may be wandering to. God, we thank you for your grace and your goodness. Lord, we thank you so much for the the truth of your salvation that you have freely made available to each of us. God, this morning, may we rest in that. Lord, the truth is that we are all tired and that, Lord, many are the concerns of our hearts that we carry day in and day out. May you, in the midst of our struggles, remind us that you are our strength, that you love us, that you care for us, and that you continue to walk with us. God, speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we, of course, talked about the, the resurrection of Jesus, right? We, we did the whole, he is risen, he is risen indeed thing. And uh, as I was preaching that sermon last week, something jumped out at me. And it's not often the case. Normally I'm pretty locked in on what I'm doing. I, I, uh, contrary to what some may believe, I'm very much a notes guy. And so if it's not written, I don't say it. And so I'm usually pretty focused on what's going on at the moment. But something jumped out at me as I was preaching last week that I just, I couldn't shake. And, and, and it was something that I felt like maybe we needed to expand upon a little bit as we came into this next week following Easter. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but there's a pattern that takes place, and we did point it out a little bit last week with the resurrection, right? Specifically in the Gospel of John, what we notice is that, th- that there is a, a sorrow or a struggle that Jesus shows up and he stands with his disciples. He He provides them with the encouragement they need, whatever that may be, whether it be with with Mary overcoming her sorrows, with the disciples overcoming their fears, or with Thomas overcoming his doubts, that God comes and stands with them in their struggles. He gives them what they need. But then there is a secondary response that's important for us to notice, and that's that they immediately go and tell someone else, right? Right? And we know, we know that the Bible says that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all people. That that is a responsibility of all of us. That's not just for me as a preacher. That is for you as the people in the pews. That is for all of us. That we are all to be evangelists sharing the good news of Jesus Christ as we go. But that's a pretty weighty thing. right? To, To have the words of life and life everlasting. It's an urgent task that that is often overwhelming to us. 
I know, I know that it was for me when I first began sharing. I, I have not always been the verbose fellow that you all know. But you can believe me or you cannot. But until I was about a senior in high school, I was moderately quiet. Now, we're going to use moderately because I wasn't always quiet. But I was quieter than what you know now. And I wasn't one to jump up in the front all the time. And I remember my uncle calling me uh, just after my senior year of high school and saying, hey, Jeremy, would you be willing to come speak at my youth retreat? Now, mind you, I've just graduated high school, so many of these people are my, my age. And, of course, I said yes because he was going to pay me and he was going to teach me to take me to the beach. <laughs> but then I got off the phone with him, and the, the euphoria of the initial ask wore off. And I realized, oh, man. What am I going to say? Any of y'all ever feel like that? When you think about sharing the gospel with someone else, when you think about telling people about Jesus, that, that that is the question that comes to your mind. What am I supposed to tell someone about Jesus? Now, I won't ask for hands, but, but I know I can look out and I see at least 10 of you that I've had conversations with in recent years where that's the question. That, that is the question. Not just here, everywhere I've been with everybody, whether it's someone standing here on stage or you in the pews, that is the question. What do I say? I don't know what to say. And we like to make it complex, right? Like we like to hear ourselves talk and to, we're in love with our own, our, our own genius. And so we make it more difficult than it needs to be. And that's what jumped out at me as I was reading the gospel narrative, the resurrection narrative last week. Did you notice what the people said when they left Jesus and they went and told someone else? It wasn't this lengthy testimony full of all the details. They, it was actually all about Jesus. I have seen the risen Christ. That was it. Now, we could argue that that was the Reader's Digest version, and John, because of you know, brevity, he's so busy talking about his own athletic prowess and how loved he is, that he didn't have space to talk about his full testimony with Jesus. But that was the testimony. And it got me thinking that perhaps we do make it more difficult than it needs to be. Perhaps our testimonies, yes, they do need to point people to salvation by faith through grace in Jesus alone. That's important. But it's never in the Gospels. You don't see them foisting that upon. You need this. It's more. This is what happened to me. That's why the title for this morning's sermon is, What's Your Story? What's your story? Not, not some big story. What's your simple story of how God found you and saved you? It can be complex. It can be as big and grand as you want to share. But it can be as simple as, I have seen the risen Christ. I began thinking about that, right? And as I thought about it and considered it, I realized that there's actually a pattern that we could go through for several weeks and talk about different people who accept, have encounter with Jesus, come to faith, and then their testimonies afterwards are incredibly simple and succinct. And I wanted to talk about one this morning with the thought that perhaps it could encourage us to consider what we might share with someone else when they ask us for the reason for the hope that we have in order that we might all become evangelists. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's okay. It'll be up here on the screen. But if you do have one, we encourage you to turn there with us. John chapter 4 
And uh, we are going to start right there at the beginning with verse 1. And it says this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a woman... When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. And in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Tells us in verse 28, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way towards him. May God grant us understanding that we might see his truth this morning. Amen. I see a lot of things in here, and what we're going to do is we're going to go through the details of this woman's story and see how she then takes that story and uses it to, to share with others. So we're going to go through a bunch of different things, but I want you to know that this whole sermon is building to the last point. And it's interesting because we're going to stack a, little a whole lot of blocks on top of each other, and then we're just going to go down and end with the foundation because that's what's important. 
So track with me here for a little while. I, th I think we see a, a framework of how salvation works for each of us. And the first thing that we notice is that Jesus enters our stories where we are, regardless of who we are or what we have done. Jesus enters our stories where we are, regardless of who we are or what we have done. There is no such thing as an accidental encounter with Jesus. No such thing as an accidental encounter with Jesus. I, I love how this, this, this passage starts, and it's kind of jarring. It's actually something that, that we look over and we miss because of our, we, we don't have the same cultural cues and values, but, but we could change the name of Samaritan to a great many other things, and it would make sense. But we see here that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? The fact is that a good Jew would not have gone through Samaria. The, the, the best Jews, the elite Jews, the truly religious and those that were considered the most righteous Jews, they would go around Samaria altogether. And you've, if you've heard a sermon before on, on the Samaritans, you know that the Jews considered them dogs. They were, they were less than nothing. They were complete and utter irredeemable trash. So great was the hatred of the Jews for the Gentiles. Not only would they go around, but if they happened to have to go through Samaria for some reason, because it was much quicker to go from, from the south to the north to just go straight through, right? The, the quickest way to go from point A to point B is generally a straight line. So it only took three days rather than close to a week to go around. And so occasionally a Jew, for, for speed's sake, would have to go through Samaria. And so great was their hatred for the Samaritans that when they got to the other side, they would shake the dust off of themselves in order that not even any Samaritan dusts would be on them. It feels kind of childish, doesn't it? It reminds me of when you were a child and, and you had someone that, that you didn't like and they would touch you and you're like, oh, i got to get the cooties off me, right? And, and we would think to ourselves, well, that doesn't happen today. And in fact, it does. Did you know if you ride a bus out of Haiti into the Dominican Republic, that they will stop your bus, they will spray the undercarriage of your bus to make sure that all of the Haitian dirt gets off of your bus so that you don't carry it into the Dominican true story. I've watched videos of it happening with people that have gone down there. And then we might say, well, that's one thing for a developing world nation, a third world nation, some other different, but, but are we really that much better? I would argue that we're not. I would argue that there are places and people, even here in Seymour, that we talk about as if they are less than. There's actually an official term that we use for it in theological circles. It's called othering. That we become so fixated on the differences and, and, and the, the ways that we can devalue others that, that, that we, 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 we don't treat them as we should. And that's what the Jews thought of the Samaritans. But the passage here says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, right? So what it says, that he had to, that there was no choice, that it was imperative that Jesus go through Samaria. Well, why? Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Was Jesus in a hurry? Was it that Jesus really had something that he had to do up in the north, and so he had to take the, the quickest beeline that he could to get there? Well, I thought about that for a while. 
Was it that Jesus just really had to get to the north? And then I thought to myself, well, I remember when Lazarus was dying, right? That Jesus' friends came to him and said, hey, Lord, the one that you love is dying. Come quickly so that you might heal him. And the next thing the passage tells us is that Jesus hung out for a couple more days. Right? We can look, there's a, a, another instance where someone is dying, and, and I believe it's a young girl, and they come to Jesus like, Jesus, come quick, she's dying. And Jesus is like, all right, I'll be there. And then Jesus takes his sweet time. Like, listen, if, if life and death are on the line, and Jesus is like, oh, we'll get there when we get there. Is there really anything that Jesus is going to hurry for? Like, I don't know. I look at the Bible, and it doesn't seem like Jesus was ever in a hurry to get anywhere. He was on God's time, and y'all could wait for him. So I can't imagine that Jesus went through Samaria because he just really had to get there. So what else could it be? Was the alternate route restricted? I mean, to go the alternate route, you actually had to cross the Jordan, go out into the desert, into the wilderness, and cross around and then cross back across the Jordan. So in the rainy season, it was possible that the, the river would be so engorged, so full, that it was impossible to cross it, or at least dangerous to cross it. But then I thought about it again. And how does the passage start? Well, the passage starts with the disciples baptizing a mess ton of people. I mean, the reason that Jesus is going to the north in the first place is to avoid the confrontation with the religious leaders and the Pharisees because they'd been baptizing too many people in the water. Well, if it wasn't too, too full and too dangerous for the disciples to be baptizing people, then surely they could have crossed and gone up. So I continue to consider why. Why did Jesus have to? You know why I believe that Jesus had to go through Samaria? Because Jesus had a divine appointment with an outcast Samaritan woman. Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had to meet with a Samaritan woman at the well. It's a dramatic deviation from the social mores and accepted standards of the day. But Jesus had to go through Samaria brings us to a thought that we need to keep in mind as we consider those whom we may be sharing with and, and even considering our own lives, that no one is too far off track, too broken, too, or too dirty for the grace and love of Jesus. No one is disqualified from the grace of Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter what you've done or what has been done to you, and I, I'm going to argue here that with this woman, it wasn't just what she had done. There are indications that she is making some questionable decisions, even if they are for survival, but that she's done some things. But I would like to argue and submit to you that it's possible and also probable that things had been done to her as well. And often we think ourselves unworthy or un others unworthy, failing to take into account what has been done to them and taking way too much into account what they have done. And really, isn't the grace of Jesus about overcoming and transcending what we've done and God bringing us salvation, all of us because we're unworthy sinners? Jesus, going through Samaria because he had to, takes a little breather at, at a well near a backwater town called Sychar. 
You want to know an interesting fact about this story? There is no town called Sychar. If you would have looked at a map of Jesus' day or you look at a map of today, there is no town called Sychar. The actual name of the town was Askar. So why did they call it Sychar? Well, it was a nickname. If I said, uh, if I say to you, uh, the Big Apple, what city am I talking about? New York, right? If I say, the city of brotherly love, which city am I talking about? If I say, the Windy City, what city am I talking about? Interesting story about the Windy City. Do you know why it's called the Windy City? You may guess because it's really windy up there, right? Did you know that you would in fact be wrong? You would be right. It was not initially called the Windy City because of that horrible wind that comes off the lake. In fact, it was originally called the Windy City because of the hot air coming out of the mouths of politicians. This comes out of an article I read online. It says, in 1893, Charles A. Dana, an editor of the New York Sun, published an editorial calling Chicago, quote, a Windy City. He did so in reference to the city's full of hot air politicians who were advocating and wooing organizations to hold the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in the city of Chicago rather than the city of New York. The truth is, the Windy City is a pejorative. What I mean by that, it is not a compliment. It's not a nickname that, that they would have necessarily chosen for themselves. It is given to them as a negative. And the same thing is true about Sychar. Sychar can be translated one of two ways, and both of them are negative. You can either translate it as the city of drunks, or if you prefer, you can translate it as the city of liars. Or maybe you want to be really hateful and you can go the full way with it and say, the city of drunken liars. That's what Sychar means. It, it, it was a, a colloquial term. It was a, 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 a slang term used to insult the dwellers of that city. Now, how bad does your city have to be to be the city in the nation that literally everybody hates? Like to, to, to clarify, it was not just the Jews that hated the Samaritans. The Romans hated the Samaritans. Everybody hated the Samaritans and thought they were dirty half-breeds that were completely irredeemable. So how bad does your city have to be to be the city of drunken liars in the nation that everybody hates? It's a bad place to be. The sketchy name for a sketchy city in the sketchy land. And as we're going to see, Jesus ends up meeting with the ultimate sketchy person. It tells us that around noon, Jesus takes a rest at the well and a woman comes out to draw water. Now once again, not an important fact to us, but perhaps you've heard a sermon about this. And if you have, then you've undoubtedly heard that gathering water at noon was not a common practice. Anybody ever traveled to the global south, meaning South America, India, Africa? Anybody? Okay, when you go to those countries, something happens that, that isn't common to us in American culture. See, when you go, when you go to these southern countries, you, you deal with what's called a siesta. Now, they might not call it the same thing in all the, the different countries, but, but you do have them. 
Increased temperatures coupled with a lack of air conditioning and I would argue an abundance of common sense and good reasoning lead these nations to stop everything around noon, go home, take a little nap, right? If I ever see a politician running on that platform, they immediately get my vote, (laughs) right? Make naps normal again, right? Like, yes, sir, I am voting for you. That is my one issue for the rest of my life. So they're taking the siesta. So nobody would be out at noon. The sun was at its highest. It was its hottest. Doing hard work of carrying a, and it's not just a little, you know, she's not carrying a water bottle, right? She's carrying what, what amounts to a case or two of waters on top of her head in a big jar to get it home. And she's going to do it at noon when no sane person would be out to get water. And Jesus is sitting there. Now, why, most people would come to get their water in the evening when it had cooled down. And it wasn't, just a, it wasn't just a perfunctory thing. They weren't just doing it because it was when they would do their work. They would do it because it was a social thing, right? We've heard this, the phrase even now, we were gathering around the water cooler. And if we might add another, another common phrase, like they would gather around the water cooler together in the evening to get their water, but also to spill the tea, as the kids would say. Now, this woman isn't there. You know why this woman isn't there in the evening? Because she is probably the tea that is being spilled. So she's avoiding it. She doesn't want to be there. But here, Jesus, well aware of her reputation. Now, how do we know that Jesus is already aware of who this woman is, what she's done, and what people think of her? Because in verse 17, he tells her, hey, go get your husband. And she's like, hey, uh, this woman who was clearly talkative a moment ago is all of a sudden, hey, I don't, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right. You haven't had a husband. You actually have had five husbands, and you're living with a dude right now that's not your husband. Jesus knows who this woman is. Jesus knows what this woman has been through. Jesus knows how the community views this woman. But still, Jesus comes, and he waits at a well at the hottest point of the day when only one woman would come to get water. Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had an important appointment to keep with one Samaritan woman. Jesus showed up at exactly the right time to meet with exactly the wrong kind of person. Isn't that like Jesus? That's one of the things I love about Jesus. Is Jesus, Jesus does not care about our schedules Jesus does not care about our societal expectations, our our judgmental boundaries, or our demeaning understandings of other people. Jesus cares not for our judgmental perceptions and poor opinions of ourselves and others. He continues to pursue us, each of us, meeting us in his time according to his plan, regardless of what others or we ourselves think we deserve or have earned. The truth is that any of us could have been this woman. And perhaps we think of ourselves as this woman. And even if we don't think of ourselves as this woman, we've met someone who is in a similar struggle. The truth is that each of us have our own baggage. We all have our own backstory. But our real story starts when we have an encounter with the living Christ and he offers us freedom. So the first thing I want you to think of at this morning as we go through this is where did your story with Jesus start? 
Where did Jesus enter your story? And perhaps today is that day that, that you're just hearing about some of these things for the first time. Where did you have your first encounter with Jesus? Where, where did the reality of who Christ was, when was it revealed to you and did it really sink in? Another thing I noticed in, in this text and many others that salvation is received by believing in Jesus, not by fixing ourselves. Salvation is received by believing in Jesus, not fixing ourselves. Jesus doesn't offer this woman physical refreshment. He offers eternal restoration. In the process, note, note what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus does reveal to her that he knows what she's done. He knows what's going on in her life. But does that ever become the primary issue for Jesus? No, it does not. Jesus is less concerned about where that woman is than where she needs to go. He, he's not concerned about beating her up or having her, her, her do this big repentance, come to Jesus moment. As a matter of fact, Jesus came to her. And I would argue that perhaps that's part of our problem as we think about sharing is that we want people to come to us. We want them to come hear this grand sermon that, that is put together very carefully. And I thank you for bringing people to church. And I want you to do that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you to stop. But, but I would argue the more impactful thing is going to be your own stories interacting and interfacing with those of others. That we become the hands and feet of Jesus going out into the world to the broken the beaten down and the struggling and sharing with them the truth of Christ. But it doesn't start with us saying, you've got to become better, but pointing them to the all-surpassing greatness of Jesus. Now the conversation seems clear on the front end. If we put ourselves into the conversation and pretend that we don't know the rest, right? Jesus is sitting at noon, it's hot, he's been traveling for a lot of days, he's resting while his disciples go get food, and, and this, this woman comes and he says, hey, can you give me a drink? It makes sense. But the woman looks and her, her statement is, are you talking to me? She's surprised that Jesus would have this conversation. The woman's response is about water, right? But it reveals a deeper truth. People didn't talk to this woman. And Jews, a good Jew especially, would not talk to a Samaritan, let alone a Samaritan woman. Again, Jesus breaking all sorts of rules and crossing all sorts of lines of propriety. And here, this woman calls him on it. A man alone talking to a woman. A prominent Jewish rabbi talking to a Samaritan. Not just talking, but asking to share a drink of water with her. Now, I know that, that this is a little bit anachronistic and out of time, but in in my day, like, one of the things I struggle with when I travel internationally is that everybody shares bottles. That's just gross to me. I don't know where you all about, are about that, but I don't want to be drinking after nobody. I don't know what germs you have. And that's not, a, that's not a moral judgment from me. That's just, I'm kind of a germaphobe and think that's gross. You know? I don't know where your mouth has been. I don't know what you've done. I'm not going to come up and kiss you on your face, and so I'm not going to drink your water, and I don't want you to drink mine. In Jesus' day, though, it was less about germs. It was common for people to share the same drinking apparatus, but you didn't drink from someone that was spiritually less than you. 
Because there was concern that their sinfulness might contaminate you. Now we hear that and we look at that and we're like, that's just dumb, aren't we? But don't we act the same? Hey, don't, don't sit by that person at lunch, little Susie, because they're family. And you may say to yourselves, people don't do that. Let me tell you, my parents got divorced when I was 15 years old and there were three people in my school that would sit with me. Why? Because the divorce was catching? We do act like that. There are certain people that were like, they're those kind of people. And Jesus is like, that. there's just people. There's people. And all of us are in need of grace, compassion, and community. And Jesus pivots from a basic human interaction. He follows her lead and turns to her need and dives deep into her life. The woman provides a small window into the brokenness of her soul, revealing the wounds that have come from her separation and condemnation. See, Jesus wasn't just willing to share a sip of water from the same jar. His desire was to share the substance of his very soul with her. He's not worried about her contaminating him, but he's seeking to bring her into full communion with God and with others. Now note, Jesus says, hey, look, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you would ask me and I would give you water that would just gush out of you like a fountain and you would never need to ask for a drink again. Now Jesus has clearly changed direction, right? Woman's still thinking about water. She thinks we're still talking about water and she's like, sir, give me this water so that I never have to come back to this well and draw water again. Now, may I submit to you that there's probably two reasons that this woman doesn't want to come back to that well. One, water's heavy, right? I don't want to carry that water back to my house either. Hey, just give me some of that water and we'll be done with this. I'll never come back here. But I think the more important reason is probably the underlying reason. She wanted water that made her never thirsty again so she never had to be out in public in front of those people again. In her brokenness, she wanted to isolate. She wanted to hide away. She didn't want to have to be the center of the conversation. She didn't want to run the risk of having to be the the tea that was being spilt anymore. She wanted to protect what was left of her soul. But Jesus isn't just talking about water that would refresh her thirst in the moment. Jesus is offering total spiritual renewal and a new lease on life. Again, I want to emphasize that salvation is not dependent upon the quality of the person or being in the right place at the right time. Salvation is all about Jesus invading our stories and demonstrating our worth because of his greatness and his great love. Jesus, again, draws the truth out of this woman uh, of her life, and, and we won't hammer on that because we've already got it. Here's this woman who's been married several times, living with a man to whom she wasn't married. Undoubtedly, there are, question, there are sexual overtones that would have been seen here, that would have been seen as a sin in that culture and in ours. But the truth is she may not have had a lot of options. It was truly a man's world. And a woman had few options for survival. 
And living with the one man could have been the lesser of the evils of what her other options for survival would have been. She's likely just trying to survive. She's likely just doing the best she can to make it through life as well as she can. Truth is, we actually know very little about what's going on in this woman's life. But it's easy for us to make sweeping assumptions, isn't it? To see this woman as a, a dirty, loose woman with low morals, questionable actions. But the text doesn't tell us that. Invariably, there is more to the story than we know. And might I submit to you that anyone we talk to in life, whether it be someone here at this church this morning or out in the world on a day-to-day basis, may I argue or submit to you that there is more to the story than what you see on the surface. And there are choices and and things that they have decided to do, but many times are our actions not reactions to the reality of our circumstances and situations? Oftentimes, wouldn't we say of ourselves that that many times we're just trying to survive? We're just trying to make life livable. We're trying to find that moment that will allow us to catch our breath. And the truth is that sometimes in trying to catch our breath, we do things that are questionable. We do go off track. That's why grace is needed. We must be careful. This is tangential, but I think it's important. We must be careful not to judge a person based upon the limited information that we know. Invariably, there's more to the story than what we see. And a person's mistakes do not disqualify them from hearing and receiving the grace of God. Jesus came into the world to heal the sin sick, to bring restoration, Restoration requires brokenness. And brothers and sisters, each of us are broken sinners. We need to stop seeing the issues in others as reasons to other them and to create barriers between them and us because barriers between them and us create barriers between them and Jesus. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. We all have hurts in need of healing. We all have shame that we're trying to hide and escape. And all of us have a deep need for compassion and connection. And Jesus does not condemn this woman. He doesn't immediately call her to correct her actions. Rather, he reveals the truth of who he is and offers her the free gift of his grace and love. See, that's the truth of the gospel, that Jesus seeks us out as we are, He invites us to be honest about what we've done or what has been done to us. And he offers us the substance of his very self to heal our hearts, to restore our lives, and to bring us into relationship with himself and his people. It's what the world needs. Now here's the crazy thing, and I've told you all of these details to bring you to this. This woman has an amazing testimony, doesn't she? Like this is one of those women with a testimony where that when you hear it, you give her a microphone because it's compelling. Here's this woman who's been incredibly broken. She is from the most broken of towns and is the most outcast of all the outcast people from the town of drunken liars in the, in the 
civilization of the Samaritans, like if anybody had a great come to Jesus moment, it's this lady. And the passage tells us that that she goes out and she shares the story. I want you to look back at your Bibles in John chapter 4, but I want us to jump ahead to verse 39. Actually, go back to 29, and then we're going to go to 39. Verse 29, we we read the substance of her testimony. You ready for it? You ready for this woman's big come-to-Jesus moment and and this elaborate story she tells everybody that, that, that causes such a stir? Here it is, verse 29. It says this. It says, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? That's it. I've been to lots of classes on how to do evangelism, and that's not it. Like that, that's not the way we do it. Like there are steps, there are things that we say, like there are, there are important doctrines that we need to cover. Grace by faith alone, right? The authority of Christ and the all-sufficiency of his word. we got to cover those things. It's kind of like that, that sermon that's been going around the internet of Alistair Begg where he's like the thief on the cross gets to heaven and he's like, how? The angel's like, how did you get here? He's like, I don't know. The guy on the cross said I could come. Like, Wait, you don't know salvation by, by grace alone through no works? I, I never heard of it. Don't know about the authority of scripture? I just don't, what's scripture? Why are you here? I don't know. He said I could come kind of true, isn't it? That's the woman. Hey, come meet a guy that told me everything I did. This might be the Messiah. Not the most certain of of sermons either, is it? Like maybe it could be, I think. Kind of reminds me of the guy who comes to Jesus with his, his sickly son and he says, hey Lord, if you're willing, can you heal my son? And Jesus is like, well, if I'm able. And he's like, hey Lord, I believe, just help my unbelief. The woman just takes her simple story. And what happens? Go to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Here's the point I want you to get from all of this rambling. If you don't hear anything else from me, hear this this morning. I'm going to change my wording. Your story has power when you share it. Your simple story has power when you share it. Clearly, an encounter with Jesus changed this woman, didn't it? You may say, well, how do you know that? The woman was hiding at the well at noon, and Jesus comes into her life and offers her his gift of salvation. And the woman immediately goes to the very people from whom she was hiding and says, come see this man who knows who I am and what I did. I think he's the Messiah. That's a dramatic change. From avoiding people to now, she's leading them to Jesus. See, Christ can redeem any of us. And Christ can use any of us. Her story is not elaborate. Her story is not eloquent. And it doesn't seem like it on the surface, but it's full of hope. If I might, if I might inject my own 
colloquial reading to this, my own personal interpretation. Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did and still spoke to me anyways. Come meet a man who knew, every, knows everything I ever did and still loves me. Is that not the substance of our stories? My story is not elaborate. I can tell the things about my dad and I can tell the things about my past, but the reality is that, that my story of salvation is me running as a scared kid to a bathroom and calling out to the name of Jesus. I didn't know much about Jesus. I just knew that the, that the preacher had told me that if I call on the name of Jesus, if I believe in him, I'll be saved. And as a nine-year-old, all that meant for me is that I didn't go to hell. I got to go to heaven. Now you might say, we might be tempted to say, well, that's not a very good understanding of salvation. You're right, it's not. But does it have to be? Does Jesus expect this big theological treatise? I don't think he does. And I'm going to argue with you. I'm going to say to you that, that your stories to others don't have to be these big stories. All they have to be is, I met Jesus and it changed my life. Jesus knows me. Perhaps we could use the old Sunday school song, as simple as it might be. Jesus loves me. This I know. Our stories, whether they be simple, whether they be shameful, or whatever they might be, have meaning, purpose, and power because Christ is in them. The question I've got to ask this morning is if Christ can use the Samaritan woman's story, if Christ can use the simple testimony of Mary Magdalene and the disciples that we have seen the risen Christ, then what can Christ do with your story? And I don't mean just individually. Let's take our American individualism out out of the picture for now. If each of us shared our story with one person, what can 200 people sharing their story do in the city of Seymour? How much hope could we spread? Brothers and sisters, what I want you to walk away with this morning is this, that your story is important. That what you have to share matters. And that just like this woman at the well, your testimony can make an immeasurable difference in the lives of others. May we share our stories. May we share the substance of ourselves with a world in need of connection, community, and most of all, in need of Christ. Father God, I pray that you would be with each of us. May we be a people that shares your word with those with whom we come into contact. And may you in your grace use us in powerful ways to bring about restoration and hope. May we not see others as less than or other. But may we invite them to join us as they are. To seek you with us and to allow you to do what only you can do. God help us to see you and follow you in our lives. May we share your grace freely and abundantly. In Jesus name, amen.